Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The official story is that Carter, by his own account, felt almost overwhelmed by the urge to break open the irksome door, but resisted and buried the stairs once again. He waited more than two weeks, ostensibly without taking any action, for his chain-smoking sponsor to arrive. Granavon traveled to Luxor by ship, railroad, and steamboat on the Nile. Together with his 21-year-old daughter, Evelyn, he alighted at the glamorous Winter Palace Hotel and rushed, having barely slept, to the Valley of the Kings. They began to clear the descending corridor, which also showed signs of a grave robber's effort. By November 4th, is that right? By November 26th, the corridor was cleared and the team found a second door and again faced again faced with plaster, stamped over with oval seals and reclosed at the top left-hand corner. At first, their enthusiasm was somewhat dampened. For the top left-hand corner, the blocks were the blockings were signs of reclosure, suggesting that the tomb had already been entered during antiquity. It was clear that Carter had indeed discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun. Not knowing what lay beyond this door, carefully under Carnivon's watchful eye, Carter eased the doorway open with a chisel his grandmother had given him for his 17th birthday. Love that detail. Carter made a small hole in it and inserted, the candle to te- and inserted a candle to test for foul gases. He then peered into the void beyond, reporting, Can you see anything? Lord Carnivon asked. Indeed. Howard Carter could. Even in the dim candlelight, he could spy gold fixtures inside the tomb. Yes, wonderful things, the archaeologist exclaimed. Howard Carter was gazing upon the intact tomb of the young Tutankhamun. The story of the newly discovered and intact burial... That that, that phrase doesn't even make sense. Yes, wonderful things, the archaeologist explained. Carter was gazing upon the intact tomb of the young King Tutankhamun. At first I could see nothing, he said. The hot air escaping from the chamber caused the candle flame to flicker. But presently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues, and gold everywhere, the glint of gold. Carter's words, we have seen enough. We plugged the hole again. Again and again, authors attest to this solemn moment in which the archaeologists looked on that internal palace, dazed, spellbound, awed, and yet managed to keep his head. Then, according to the excavation leader, he stopped in order to notify the Egyptian inspector general as duty required. And all of that was a lie. What really took place can be gathered from a report that Lord Carnarvon wrote shortly before his death. Instead of waiting dutifully as regulations required, the party forced its way through the narrow opening right away. Using tallow candles and a weak electrical lamp, the interlopers first entered the antechamber. Golden beds and beautifully carved chairs were piled up in the narrow room, as well as gaming tables and precious vases. Oval basins held food for the dead pharaoh. 
animal figures shone from the posts of gilded litters, monstrous in the weak cone of light from the lamp. The explorers moved chests, trampled brittle woven baskets, and pocketed perfume jars, opening chests in the side chamber as well. And of course, Howard Carter had discovered the boy pharaoh's tomb of Tutankhamun. But not in the way that uh, that history tells us, Marie, not in that not in that kind of sweet way. Or maybe it was. I mean, it's it's so maybe probably not as romanticized as was written. But as we find out, you know, in studying more about King Tut, like everything he touched and everything he talked about during this time, the late 1920s, just got got blown bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. So. I don't know. It's so weird. It's like such a strange. It's such a strange part of the story, I guess, to have him be. I, I don't know. You're. I think it's interesting that you say it like that. It gets blown and blown and blown up more, right? Because yes. it's such a weird. Like he discovers the tomb and then he's like, "Close it up. We must fill out the paperwork." <laughs> like, is that is that really a heroic story? I mean, I guess it is for today's archaeologists. Well. It speaks to what we do know about him, right? That he was not someone who he was. He was very annoying. Anger. Um, he was very annoying. Uh, he was prone to anger, but he had great self-discipline, right? He was the one who could sit for hours on end in the dark with just a candle, tracing exact replicas of what he saw on the wall. So, I have a feeling that maybe there's somewhat of some truth to that, but then. I don't I don't think that he probably followed everything by the exact letter of the law because this was a huge once in a lifetime event as well. So I can only imagine that he did probably have to wait for Carnivon to show up after, you know, having his his whirlwind uh trip luxury, you know, by luxury liner and stuff. I lost I also love the fact that he's described as a chain smoker, which is pretty hysterical. That is kind of funny considering our introduction to Carnivon is like he's too sickly to work anymore. So yeah. his doctors were probably like, well if you smoke twelve of these a day, you should get real healthy real quick. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> as I, they said at the time. I know and I even love the the idea of him having sort of one of those long cigarette holders maybe too, you know, with, with some Egyptian motif on it, right? That he's you know, peering over uh, Carter's shoulder, trying to see what he's doing. And Carter's like, dude, can you please just give me some space? You know, I've got <laughs> personal issues with that already. And you're bugging me with the cigarette smoke. Right, right. Tell me to bust it open. Oh, uh, my God. I know. But so now we can, you know, he's he's discovered. He's discovered the boy, the boy Pharaoh's tomb. So Tutankhamun Common or King Tut ruled after the Amarna age when the Pharaoh Akhenaten who we believe was King Tut's father, turned the religious attention of the kingdom away from mono or away from polytheism to monotheism, specifically to worship the god Aten, who was uh, in some parts of Egypt considered like the sun disk, in other places considered like an all father type of god, and other places to be like the the sun, like the power of the sun that brings to the land. So like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's weird. A lot of actually a lot of Christianity and a lot of like Christian mythology, symbolism and everything else comes from this uh, god Aten in Egyptian lore. So like the idea of a single godhead being three, like and this has nothing to do with like whether or not you believe 
Christianity is real or not or whatever, but just like the store oh, the overarching storyline and ideas that influenced um, the way that the Bible is written and the myths that were used in the Bible to convey meaning and everything else. Um, some of that came from ancient Egypt and some of these ideas were around for a much longer time. Mm-hmm. So this idea of like the God Aten being three figures in one, obviously anyone who knows Christian mythology or, or is a Christian themselves or a Catholic will know um, the the father, the son and the Holy spirit, right. Or the kind of three figured Godhead of, of Catholicism. So mm-hmm. Akhenaten uh, is considered like the, the hated Pharaoh, right? He's the one that's been stripped from all the records and everything else because he moved Egypt from polytheism to monotheism. Um, so Akhenaten moved his capital city to the state of Akhetaten, also known as Amarna, um, in Middle Egypt, which is really far from the previous capital of the pharaohs. And um, after Akhenaten's death um, and the rule of uh, his successor, um, Smenkar, Tutankhamun shifted the focus of the country's worship back away from Aten to the god Amun and returned the religious center back to Thebes. So basically, the reason that Tutankhamun is so celebrated, whereas Akhenaten is sort of hated, is because Tutankhamun basically comes back and says, like, we're going back to the old religion. Clearly, that didn't work. You know what I mean? Whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He made Egypt great again. <laughs> he made Egypt great again. So, uh, Tut... King Tut marries his half-sister, which is, like, not weird at all. Um, Ancus Fairly common and, at the time, right? Um, Again. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's the fine. The bloodline was kept in, in royal blood kind of thing. Got to keep that bloodline pure so the lips can be small and the heads can be large. Um, so Tut marries his half-sister. Her name is something like Akasanaman, although who knows if I'm saying that correct. They didn't produce an heir. Um so there wasn't like a clear line of succession. Right. On top of that, King Tut dies at 18. Um, although some people, they're not sure about how he died. Right, Marie? So give me give me some of the options here. So they there's much speculation to his death. Uh, it could have been a chariot accident thrown from his royal chariot. He could have been murdered by the back, uh, by a blow to the back of the head because okay. they found some uh, damage there when they looked at the... Um, the mummies we'll get into, or it could have even been um, reports of a hippopotamus attack. Hippom- you know, I think that's probably lesser contender. However, the total answer is still unclear. Um, Tutankhamun's much older advisor and probably like his step grandfather, I married the, his widowed his widowed bride and then became pharaoh. So um, again, okay. like the advisor. But, go ahead. Mm. No, I was going to say, so, hmm. so continue your thoughts. So the, advi- okay, continue your so, thoughts. Yeah. So, I mean, again, leading to um, a possible power grab, right? Which is one of the thoughts that, that the, the, the boy King was, was too popular, but you know, too weak. Um, he wasn't producing an heir. Uh, and so they stepped in, you know, the, uh, his, his supporting power structure stepped in, murdered him and then took his place. Just like Biggie and Tupac. Well, actually, nothing like Biggie and Tupac, but... Um. Fine, fine, <laughs> whatever, Marie. So, okay, one one thing I want to... Actually, one thing I want to say before we get into, like, the actual getting of the stuff from the tomb, too. All these names, like Tutankhamun, Akhenaten, you know, mm-hmm. 
the pharaohs of Egypt had like a really complicated naming convention for themselves. So they all had like a birth name, but then they had a royal name, which was like the name of their like deity. kind. Because like pharaohs were considered to be gods. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were like the representation of God on Earth. So they all had like a regular name and then like a God name. And then they had like other names on top of that, too. Like so there's so if you're reading about King Tut or Akhenaten or any of these other people, too, it can get really complicated because the names that we know them by aren't necessarily the names that like they were written about as, I guess I would say. So like, so, um, so Tutankhamun, for example, um, has a bunch of other names as well. So he has, um, yeah, just, just loads of other names, which is really exciting and weird. Um, but I don't know, kind of interesting. I, I always think that's really interesting. I don't know why. Well, because he's too important just to have one moniker, right? I mean, he's not one thing. So they have to describe him as this huge multitude of things because he is that much to their world. Or that's what they're trying to to convey, right? He's not just the king. He's the god. He's not just the god. He's sort of the all-powerful, our, our all-powerful father. You know, he's the husband, yada, yada, yada. Like, I think that that's kind of... You know, that's kind of indicative of something that's trying to imbue um, the ruling class with more than just, you know, they're just the king or they're just the yeah. pharaoh. No, exactly. So like so so he had so two so his two names, right, mm-hmm. that he's most well known by are Tutankhaten, which that one means living image of Aden, and then Tutankhamun, which means living image of Amun. And so when his father, Akhenaten, was alive and Aten was the main god, he was known as Tutankhaten. But mm-hmm. when he switched the religion back over, he became um, Tutankhamun to be the living image of Amun instead of the living image See of See how Aten. that works? See? Yeah, so it's... It's sort of interesting because you think you'd only be the living image of one god. <laughs> it's funny <laughs> how that happens. That. You'd stick with that for the, you know, the full 18 years, but nope, moving it. Yeah, uh, kind of interesting. It's thing. just all it's political. It's a huge political thing. It's like I'm going to take the name of the god that's going to give us the most stability, right? And I'm sure of it. Like again, he had advisors, as we see here with the uh, the step step grandfather, who might or might not have seized power. But regardless of like his name, he was known. You know, later on, again, we'll we'll talk about this, but he is known as King Tut, right? That that is in the papers and uh, in the media at the time that that's, that was the moniker that they shortened it to that, that, you know, was able to have everyone kind of latch onto it and understand it and be able to say it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So in, so getting back into the actual dig um, and the retrieval of the items, the, the excavation and removing everything from the tomb took 10 years and the final objects were only shipped to Cairo in the spring of 1932. And again, like this attracted more worldwide publicity than any other scientific moment in that up to that time. So this was like, you know, the biggest thing that could have happened in science period. There wasn't the moon landing yet, et cetera, but this was a huge, huge, huge national event. Um, and in the antechamber, which was the first room to be cleared, again, just like we described before, there were wooden sculptures, there were chariots, pieces of furniture, boxes, like 
chest just crammed full of like uh, delicate fabric and jewelry and even cosmetics, ceramic vessels full of food stuff and wine for his voyage into the into the afterlife, um, and just hundreds and hundreds of articles of clothing. So like sandals that were so delicate that they basically, after all this time, you know, couldn't even be touched because they were they would fall apart. Um, like linen gloves, and there there's descriptions of wreaths of dried flowers that were probably thrown into the antechamber, maybe at the last minute by his worshippers and his young widow. But all of this, which is sort of again very romanticized view, yes, but could you know it would it it was a funeral site, so it would have been, you know, it would have had some sort of some sort of closing event, right? I mean, basically some sort of funeral or something that they would attest to. Um, but what I thought was so interesting is this is also where they start to talk about the conservation of these things that are clearly um, affected by age and how do they move them and how they had to be conserved and stabilized in parf and wax before they, they, before they could be moved. Um, but Carter himself and again, this is another one of my favorite quotes besides describing Carnavan as the chain smoker, likened this room to the property room of an opera of a vanquished, of a vanished civilization. So a sort of like sort of this props room um, of backstage where it's just all this jumble of stuff kind of crammed together. It doesn't really make any sense, um, but just literally is representative and filled with what they believe were the king's favorite things, the stuff that was going to be buried with him in the belief that his spirit form could enjoy them into the afterlife. What's interesting, too, is that they think there might be uh, today. So if you look up any. If you look up any. So, OK. The. <laughs> The idea that they could bring it in the afterlife, I think, is really funny because <laughs> if you look at pictures of what the tomb they think, you know, probably looked like based on Carter's, you know, writings about it and cataloging and everything else, it looked like a complete mess, like a hoarder's buried alive yeah. situation, yeah. you know, just like mm -hmm. gold stuff piled upon gold stuff and like random things and whatever. Um, what's interesting, though, is that so the kind of accepted um, the accepted rooms are there's the main corridor than the antechamber, the antechamber, antechamber being filled with, you know, gold stuff and, and treasures and everything else. There is an annex room, which is like kind of behind the antechamber. There is the burial chamber itself, which so you, you kind of walk down the corridor, you're going to the antechamber. The annex is like to the back left of the uh, antechamber. The treasure room is a doorway in the annex on the far right hand side that you go into. It's just this big ass room with the sarcophagus and everything else in it. And then on the other side of the sarcophagus, so kind of kitty corner to the door of the of the uh, antechamber is the treasure chamber um, kind of scans and stuff. So one kind of prevailing idea or prevailing mystery, I guess, is the idea that, you know, the there are hidden rooms in King Tut's tomb, right? Or there's like a hidden room in the in the in the um, in the Sphinx or whatever. Mm -hmm. And actually, modern scanning shows that there might be hollow chambers there that actually do suggest maybe there being other rooms and stuff. But like there's like hidden doorways, maybe or whatever. But the thing is, like Marie said, they were putting this stuff there so that the king could get it when he came back as like 
a ghost. <laughs> so it's kind it's of an interesting form. thing. Yeah, yeah that this would this would all accompany it with him, right? Like that this is his this these are the things he loved. And so, you know, when they they say, Well, when you die, you can't take it with you. No, King Tuck did. Totally can. <laughs> you know, totally you got can. enough money. Bury me in my roller skates, Marie. Uh, Uh, So the interestingly, too, I think a a thing you said or mentioned there mm -hmm. was this idea that like all the minute they open the tomb, stuff starts deteriorating immediately. Yes, which I think is fascinating. (laughs) Because you have this you have this this um, you have stuff that already hasn't really. I mean, obviously, they've been mummified and stuff has been dried and everything else and whatever. But. You know, it's not like the ancient Egyptians had a great idea about how to preserve um, organic items. You know what I mean? And by organic, I mean like non-gold, right? Like not rocks and metal. Um, Stuff that actually could could degrade in atmosphere. They seal it up. And so you can imagine that some level of kind of homeostasis or homeostasis is the wrong word, but some kind of level of equilibrium has been reached inside the chamber where stuff Ah. is degrading but it's degrading at like a normal time or, or not a normal time but it's it's just it, it gets used to that environment outside force exactly yeah it's it's not like exactly. it's pressurized because it was probably not airtight but it's sort of like there's nothing um there's nothing from the outside that has that's come in in over three thousand years so it's not just exactly. like a couple hundred years it's like thousands of years old like yeah. three thousand two hundred and forty five years old so Right. And then they open it up. And so immediately stuff starts to like, you can imagine this is stuff that probably hasn't hit a lot of humidity. Yes. In, um, in thousands of years. So suddenly you have, you have humidity, you have sand, you have just new air, right? Mm -hmm. Spreading, uh, Mm -hmm. chemical and, and whatever, like other things that weren't there before. So it's a really interesting, um, I don't know. It's a really interesting, like, chemistry problem in my head, kind of. It is. And the chemistry comes up later on when we talk about his curse. Yeah. Yeah, it sure does. But, yeah, so they finally, so they get past the antechamber, like you were saying, and they get to the innermost coffin. And this is probably the thing that is the most thought of when we think about uh, King Tut and King Tut's tomb. So the sarcophagus um, held three coffins in total. Um, the two outer ones were created in wood and then covered in gold with semi-precious stones. So again, real ornate and was, um, you know, again, but mostly made out of wood and was made to hold what, you know, the mummy of, of the king. The innermost, however, <clears throat> was solid gold. But when Howard Carter opened it and came across it, it wasn't the shiny gold that we think of, right, that's now in the museum um, from his excavation notes, he states that it was covered in a thick, pitch-like layer, which extended from the hands to the ankles. And what they think is that this was some sort of an anointing liquid, which had been poured over the coffin during the burial. Um, again, to in you know, basically just drenching the whole coffin uh, that was gold and just burying it under this black layer of pitch, which I think probably had two main main uh, purposes one again to anoint the god with some sort of um you know some sort of holy you know and you know annotation to see him into the next world but then also you know a pitch black liquid to sort of dissuade anyone from thinking that that coffin is anything 
right? Because mm. it's just now sticky black pitch. Yeah, it could it's be just dry, for sure. Yeah. You know? And with that, we are going to go into our first break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. And we're back. Okay, so this sarcophagus, it's all kind of covered in goop and it's wood and then there's lapis lazuli and gold and everything else. You can finally get to the last one. And so you get this golden, you, you get off all the gunk and you get this golden image of a god. And so that image is is supposed to be what the god, what, what the pharaoh will look like in the afterlife because Egyptian the Egyptian people thought at the time that um, the gods were golden. They they literally had skin of gold. They had bones of silver. Their hair was made of lapis lazuli, which makes combing it a nightmare. Um, <laughs> yeah, but so your the, complexion's great. It is great. So the picture there, or that image on the sarcophagus, is actually supposed to be what King Tut, it's thought, would have looked like in the afterlife. Um, on the same time, so he's holding a crook and flail, which were symbols of the kings, and then the goddess's neck bit, uh, is shown as a vulture and Wajit is shown as a cobra um, that they're stretching their wings across his torso. So these two goddesses are protecting him um, between beneath those goddesses are two more Isis and Nephthys um, that again are etched into the golden lid and that death mask of the, of the Pharaoh um, actually originally rested on the mummy itself inside the coffin, inside the innermost, innermost golden portion. Um, and it's, it's this thing is crazy. It's two sheets of gold hammered together. It weighs twenty two and a half pounds, so like ten point two kigs. Oh my um, god! Too heavy for a mummy. Too heavy for a mummy. Well, just like I mean, just like again, think about like the overkill. Like that's an amazing, like just. So, he died relatively suddenly. Let's just just kind of spell this out really quick. He died relatively suddenly, um, you know, of unknown causes perhaps. So how long did it take to get all this stuff prepared? Cause this is yeah. not stuff that they had sitting around or maybe they had been preparing it since his birth. And this was something that they were going to, you know, uh, like he, they had it ready for every Pharaoh. I haven't done the research to figure that out, but it's like, this is amazing craftsmanship masterpieces. And like, I'm curious to know how long they had this stuff before they, they, they entombed him. Well, I think doesn't the mummification process take a long time too? Yeah, it takes. Yeah, I think my. So again, we would probably need to do yeah, it took, better it took researches. Se- it, yeah, but, it took. Yeah. It took like it took like seventy to eighty days to mummify a pharaoh, right? So figure from the time he dies, they have, you know, three months, give or take, to come up with all this stuff. And I think too, like he did die suddenly, like you said. Mm-hmm. But I do think, again, cannot say for certain here. But I believe and listeners, if you if you know this, please let us know. But I believe they were preparing. They were preparing for their deaths like the whole time. Being a pharaoh was not a very. uh, I don't know. It seems like it's a little. A little lot of longevity. There was a lot of risk. Right. Yeah. Got to go into the afterlife with a lot of stuff. But there was a lot of risk. No, a hell of a lot of risk. So. 
<laughs> gets to go there with a lot of stuff, but there's a lot of risk there. Uh, so the thing that he's wearing too, that's not his hair, that, that headdress thing, the, the Nemes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a headcloth that is supposed to just be like, a you know, that's another signal of royalty. Same thing with that big beard that's false. That's also supposed to be directing him um, or showing him as a god pharaoh. Um, it's, it, you know, really interesting, um, kind of the headdress mm-hmm. and the ornamentation that they utilized. Um, on top of that, too, the back of the death mask itself is covered with spell 151B from the Book of the Dead, um, which basically is like the roadmap for the afterlife. It's um, supposed to protect the king, the king's body as it moves through the different kind of chambers of the afterlife to get to finally the the final reward essentially right so anyone who's played assassin's creed origins actually you've probably played through this part where you have to like you, know, you fight the giant snake and like you know so it's it's really interesting they had this like very complex um methodology of going from like proving your worth in the afterlife to show you know was your uh was your life moral and are you good enough to to move on basically yeah so yeah. it's it's kind of interesting all of the that all of that portion of this I think is really fascinating. Um and Lord Carnarvon thought, well that's yeah, that's pretty that's pretty interesting. Let's make some freaking money. <laughs> you know? He he lit up another cigarette and said, you know, Howard, you know, Howard, I think that I think we can make some I think we can make some bucks off of this. Yeah. So it's crazy. it's actually kind of crazy. Like Carter and Carnivon, so they make a deal with the, uh, they make a deal with, uh, what's the name of this one here? Uh, the, the London Times The London Times? Times? Paper, the London yeah. Times. Okay, so they, so they, they make a deal with the London Times newspaper, basically, um, to sell these, these photographs that Harry Burton, who's a photographer at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, British born, um, he's brought in to do these, these pictures, which if you've seen pictures of the excavation, mm-hmm. these are probably the ones that you've seen. Um, and what's interesting is they, um, his background, yeah, his background was like stage in Hollywood. And again, not really, um, indicative of what the actual event was or the actual, uh, uncovering of the event, but sort of like this huge production of what the event should have been like. Right. So he came up and it was like all this stage lighting and things that were being developed in Hollywood at the time to make it as dramatic as possible. Right. And so like, you know, they 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 had it like he was going to come in and and he'd be take some of the first photographs of the untouched antechamber of the tomb, which had been like, you know, been tromped through by by workers for several weeks, visited by like dozens of people. And at that point had been totally rigged out for electrical lighting, which I think is kind of hysterical because it's like, you know, immediately uh, Carnivon was like, all right, so we have to, you know, we're going to get, we're going to get this very famous photographer in here, but we have to make sure that this tells this really compelling story because this is a big deal. Um, and then one other point that I love too, is that Carnivon sold the story and the photographs to the London times, but he kept the movie rights. There's a savvy guy. There's a savvy well, guy. He kept the film rights for himself. Cause he's like, Oh, I smell, I smell a, I smell a series. I smell, you know, not just, not just one story, but multiple stories. This is going to be big. It's going to be big. 
Well, what's interesting, too, is that despite all of this, like, effort to make this a media sensation, everything else, Mm -hmm. um, they didn't they really didn't know what they were doing in terms of conserving the items. They found a lot of stuff, but it's 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 thought today that only a very small portion were lost ultimately. Right. That Mm -hmm. it's a quarter of one percent of them were lost despite there being a lot of objects discovered. And this is often said to be due to the work of Alfred Lucas in particular, who was a chemist on Carter's team who devised methods to like conserve these items in different ways, which I think is, is really kind of an interesting and cool part of the story that we never hear that guy's name. No, you know what I mean? We never hear about Alfred Lucas, although he was a very, um, it was a very important part of this. Right, because he was the one who actually got them out in one piece. Yes. Right, which I think is fascinating because, again, to your point, this stuff had been sequestered away for thousands of years. And so how do you, I mean, 10 years it took to kind of get everything or what they believe is everything out and as much of it in one piece as possible. And at the same time, sort of monetizing the hell out of it. Right. So it's yeah. like they're trying to do both. I think that it's an interesting um, it's an interesting dichotomy of trying to do both at the same mm. time, which, again, will have mixed results. Absolutely. So on top of kind of the funny, like the the monetary aspects of all this, that Carnivon was like, sweet, now we can make money um, on top of that, too. So the Times publishes these photographs, the first ones on the, on January 1923, the 30th of January. And then they're sold around um, just to, to like the world generally. But the problem is that, you know, in the time that Carter and Carnivon had been searching for this stuff, the politics of searching for antiquities changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, um, you, you know, Europe and especially Britain didn't have all this say in who got to like keep the stuff and sell the discovery and everything else. Cause they were the people of Egypt's by birthright. Yeah. You know, this is, these are their ancestors Location. who exactly like <laughs> this is their antiquities that you're kind of like, yeah, you're studying them and everything else. But you know, this is Egyptian. These are Egyptian items. So yeah, what's kind of interesting is they never gave the Egyptian press access to the story. So it's like people in Egypt have to read about the discovery of their own um, historical antiquities from the London uh, Times, the London Times. Yeah, it's like going through another person to get to them, which is kind of crazy. On top of that, too, colonial as hell, too. Right. Like they're probably and again, they're starting to like commoditize the idea of uh, of Egypt as well. This is when sort of the 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 fad of the Egyptian, of all things Egypt, comes into play with King Tut. Yeah, and what's, you know, it's interesting, right? So despite, like, Carter and Carnivon, at least Carter, at least, being, in previous episodes, we had kind of talked about him as being almost like a positive force, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think I think in many ways he was. Yes. Um, there's no way to look at historical figures and, and take only the good, though. And right. this is one area that he was sort of, he thought I've been given the right to study these things. I've been given the right to dig for them. So by rights, if I find them, you know, finders keepers. Well, yeah, you know? I'm not giving them back. No, there's no way. Ten I'm years of back. my life, and I, you know, and again, like it is this entitlement 
to something that really was not theirs. Right. It was never theirs to begin with. No. And so uh, it took until 1929 for basically Carter and Carnarvon to stop fighting about whether or not they would get to bring a mummy home to their houses, essentially. Right. They think like they thought they could bring home like in previous eras of digging um, mm-hmm. or previous years of digging that they would be able to bring home like, you know, um, yeah. uh, all the, uh, all the treasure. Yeah, a little bit of treasure, right? A little, a little bit. A little bit of treasure off the top. To set right. up in their grand salon and then point out to the other lords and ladies about stuff, right? Like it was it was their own collection. This was for their own amusement. Right. But so interestingly, despite that kind of colonial view on this archaeology and this find, um, the Egyptian government held firm. Yeah. And said, no, no, this is all this is stuff that stays in the Egyptian museum here in Cairo. The, you know, you uh, doing the dig and everything else is fine because you've asked us for permission, but none of this is going home with you. None of this is going into a British museum or an American museum. Um, All of that has to come with us. And you've already pissed us off by selling the photos to not, you know, by selling the photos that you had no right to do that either. Right. So it's kind of interesting. This is this is really besides the fact that it's a turning point in archaeology because of the popularity of the field that gets made with this discovery. Um, it's also kind of a turning point in like the, the politics of archeology. span Yes. And sort of what, what they're described as the colonial arrogance, that it was a foregone conclusion that this was theirs. This is one of like, this is a major event where they're like, no, it's not. And it actually, that was the case. And they weren't over, it wasn't overthrown or it wasn't changed. That was the ruling. And that was what happened which I think is a major, kind of a major historic event too, which we don't really associate with uh, with this event. But it was the biggest scientific event of its time, bar none, and sort of the quote-unquote fruits of the labor or the spoils were not, were not ever realized by the, the colonial empire themselves, yeah. which is and interesting. So it is very interesting. So... Um, all of this kind of politicking back and forth and anger led to Carter actually being like locked out of the tomb. Like literally. <laughs> they were like, they changed the lock on the gate to the tomb. Um, so he, he stopped, he had to stop working there for a number of years and then only returned back in 1933. Um, and, you know, as that resumed, uh, Burton continued to photograph these objects and everything else. And it's from these photographs and sort of the surroundings. I think part of it is the political intrigue, but also kind of the the drama of what happens next that we end up with mm-hmm. the topic of next week's final episode in the King Tut Howard Carter saga. The curse. The mummy's curse. <laughs> Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, 
to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woohoo! And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Yeah, so look, we, I, I think we I think we mispronounced some of those. Oh, did we? Did I? We, as in me. <laughs> <laughs> what really took place can be gathered from a report that Lord Carnivon wrote shortly before his death. Instead of waiting... P- and all of that is a lie. Tutankhamun ruled after the Amarna Age, when the pharaoh, Akhenaten, who was Tutankhamun... Oh my god. Mm-hmm. There's too many omens, too many omens, omens. Omens and omens. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.